0: well good morning everyone grace and peace welcome back to our uh, adventure through the book of Revelation um, as we get started today I want to uh, to ponder something um, like singing biblically speaking is really important and um, what is the, the, the book of the Bible that has the most singing? The Psalms. The Psalms. It's it's a, yeah, the, the Psalms were originally prayers that were sung. Uh, no doubt. What's number
1: two? Lamentations.
0: Book of So Lamentations, Psalms. Song of Solomon. Anybody else? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Come on, guys, get with it. It's the book of Revelation. (laughs) Come on! Right? There is is more singing in the book of Revelation than any other book besides the Psalms. Uh, And think about it. Uh, One of the things that Pastor Kurt and I will constantly uh, be working with you on is, is, is if you have a perspective on the book of Revelation, it's probably something along the lines is that it's giving us some sort of road map to the future. And hopefully, at least two weeks ago, uh, we dispel that. It is a book of the Bible. It, it, at its heart, it is pastoral. Like, when John was writing on Patmos in exile, he had a lot of care for the churches all around. And he did not want them to lose heart. He wanted them to overcome. And that's a big theme in the book of Revelation. So he writes this pastoral apocalypse, this vision that he received from God to help encourage them. So if it encouraged the first century church, it is to encourage us, right? And so uh, one of my dreams and hopes as I continue to lead our congregation is that we will be a congregation that sings deeply and loudly. If you've ever been in a worship service where the singing was like deeply robust uh, the, the thing I always think of is our time back at Asbury Seminary. If you ever are in Wilmore, Kentucky or even close to it during the school year, you need to stop Right, Casey? I'm not making this up. You need to stop and go attend a chapel service. Right, Ken? It's almost like you take this much step of a closer to heaven. It's amazing to listen to people sing with their hearts full and with voices loud. The book of Revelation kind of emulates that uh, for sure. So a connection I want to make this morning is uh, between the book of Revelation and the Psalms. Today is the 23rd of January. Uh, Is January ever going to end? I don't know, Uh, but it's the 23rd today. So we we know what Psalm 23 is. Yes? The Lord is my shepherd, right? Well, the book of Revelation talks about that. And it's in the the end of a song. And so if you'll turn to, to Revelation 7... And we'll get to this uh, in a couple, three months, I'm sure, maybe longer. Uh, but I want, you, I want it to alert it to you uh, now. And so as, you, as you're headed that way, I want to show you a, a photo, too. I you know I'm kind of all over the place here this morning. Um, to look at that. Everybody see it? The white lines... On uh, the bottom, represent every chapter in the Bible. So, everybody know what this is? Psalm 119. Very good. That's the longest by far chapter in the Bible. All right? So, that's every chapter in the Bible. So, all of the lines represent all of the hyperlinks or cross references, however you want to say, in the Bible. So like there's 66,000 lines right there, all meshed together. And so when we're down here with the book of Revelation, it's looping back and picking up all of these themes. And so one of these lines is connected between Revelation, in the end of Revelation chapter 7, and Psalm 23. Let me read uh, the song. Uh, at the end of Revelation seven, therefore, they, it's us, this is a statement of our current reality in God's presence. They are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their, what do you have? Shepherd. Shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now let's together pray Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake, and even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. right. Pastor Kurt told me last week that he basically uh, tried to uh, introduce the book of Revelation to you by talking about the book of Daniel. Is that correct? Okay. So that's kind of where he was. He said he didn't get through any of the text. And so, uh, ironically enough, uh, we are going to begin uh, in verse 7. Um, the Just to reiterate the uh, <coughs> the content of verse 6 and really this whole section here, verses 1 through 8, sets the stage for the entire book. There's like all these little mini hyperlinks uh, between the first 8 verses and what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And there is this declaration in verse 6 of who we are. Like you got to come to grips with that. Like at the heart of how you live and are in the world, what, what is the leading value of you? And he lays it out for us here that we are a kingdom and priest. And uh, Derek reminded us that Randy Travis doesn't come up with his lyrics out of nowhere, but to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's right, Derek. So good. All right. So, verse seven look. One of the things that's so interesting about the book of Revelation is that you'll see this word a lot, look. And uh, there's this, this uh, not conflict, but a lot of times John will hear the word look, and then he'll not see something, but he'll hear something. Or, he'll be told to listen, and then he sees something different. So, uh, here's an example. Uh, The lion and the lamb, maybe we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He says, see, or look, or pay attention. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And we get all excited. Lions. And then he turns around and he looks, and what does he see? A lamb with his throat cut open. Who do we follow wherever we go? The Lamb, right? So just pay attention to those things. Uh, the, The dichotomy, you might say, between what John is asked to do and what actually happens. John is like exerting every bit of energy that he has to make sense of what he is seeing. Another word, and maybe Kurt mentioned this last week, another word that is prevalent in the book of Revelation is the word like. I heard the voice of God like a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet, but it was like a trumpet. And then in the next phrase, it was like the sound of rushing waters. Okay, John, which one is it? Does God's voice sound like a trumpet, or does it sound like rushing waters? And he'd say, you got me. I'm just trying the best I can. So if John is challenged to make sense of what he's seeing, no wonder, Pat, that this is complicated. Yes. Right. All right. So here we are, verse 7. Well, maybe we're going to eventually get there. Everybody uh, see this? Um, this is... Uh, The outline, I would say it's my outline, but it's not. Uh, This is the outline that my revelation teacher uh, gave us. Um, We talked about it, so you can kind of follow along and note the parallels. Um, One of the things that we, uh, and just kind of keep your eye on that when I talk about this, Um, one of the ways that we are taught to read books and to read literature is this happens, then this happens, then this happens. It's called linear reading. And practically every book we've ever read is like that. Occasionally you'll see a movie that starts out with somebody in their old age reflecting on something and then the rest of the movie goes back to their childhood, or to another time in their adult life, and then unpacks this critical event that's happened, and then the movie ends back in that uh, age perspective, you might say. So that's not necessarily linear, uh, but it kind of works like there, and there, and then back here. Well, whenever we read the book of Revelation linearly, we make the assumption, well, this happened. Then this is gonna happen, then this is gonna happen, and then this is gonna happen, and then this is gonna happen. It's probably not the best way to read the book of Revelation. When you see all of these lists, or just notice, you know, we got seven churches and seven trumpets over here, and then seven seals and seven bowls, all of these mentions of seven kind of gives us an indication that maybe we should read the book of Revelation. Anybody been to the Cyclorama at Gettysburg? Gary has, yeah. G- Gary, you might just stand up. Come here. You can do this. So, since you've been there, I want you to, when you went to the Cyclorama, and so you're standing here and you're looking at Pickett's Charge, tell them what you saw.
1: Saw it coming from all around.
0: Okay. Yeah. But when you were turned that way, what did when you turned and when you're looking at Pickett's Charge, okay. what did you see?
1: See a bunch of desperate men, and I see fire, and I was in the battle basically.
0: That's right. What was going on? Oh, you got to look at Pickett's Charge.
1: A lot of noise, a lot of artillery going off, a lot of screaming. It's a, it's a well done.
0: So that's what's going on behind. You. But you can't. Pay attention to that and pick its charge at the same time, that's correct, right, contrary to our wives' desire we can 't do two things at once <laughs> right we can 't sorry i 'm sure there 's going to be some <laughs> some wives that are listening to this, but yeah, see you, and so that 's kind of what 's the book so is that everything that Gary experienced in that Sakurama, because what if the Sakurama is? It's this whole de- depiction of the battles of Gettysburg in a big circle. And so you can actually stand in the middle of the battle and, and experience it through this piece of art that was done in like the 1890s or 1880s or something like that. And so that's kind of what's going on with the book of Revelation. Is that, go ahead Gary. I'll give Gary a hand. Thank you Gary. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's what's going on, is that what God has done, is doing, and will do. And we are in the middle of it because we're living life. It's very hard to keep our perspective, heavenly perspective, on the realities of God in the midst of very difficult circumstances holy living in an unholy world. And so like, okay, God show me what's going on here. And at the same time that's going on, this is going on, but we can't process it at the same time. So then you turn and then you experience that. Then you experience that. And it's like layered upon layered of uh, all that is going on uh, in the world throughout history. It's just kind of layered upon one another. It's not linear, so we'll notice these these key things. There's this one. There's this one passage at the end of the book where John is just completely overwhelmed by what he sees, and he falls down at the feet and he worships. The angel. It's not a good idea to worship angels, is it? So the angel reaches down and says, whoa, 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 don't do that. Worship God. About two chapters later, same thing. The angel says, whoa, 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 don't do that. Worship God. I do not think that John, being a a, Christian Christian, Uh, uh, exile on Patmos is going to be prone to disobeying God. Right? You see what I mean? What John is writing or reiterating is the same event. Just written in two different uh, levels of the story. Same event. So I know that's really complicated. But as we go through this book, you will begin to understand. So just kind of follow along as we go through this. On the back of this, Pat was harassing me for it. but it's, it's hard to read. And, uh, but I just wanted to give you that to remind you, uh, this, is, this is another example of an outline of Revelation, that the Bible Project has, has two videos on the outline of the book of Revelation. And then this is the end of the outline, uh, the, the total of it. And so I would encourage you to go watch those videos uh, this week or next and uh, just kind of get their perspective on the outline of the book of Revelation. <laughs> Okay, now we're ready. Verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Well, let's unpack this. Let's start at the back, at the bottom, and move back up. Um, one of the key characteristics of the Book of Revelation is that it presents us two possibilities of living and being in the world. Are we going to be a citizen of heaven in New Jerusalem? Uh, if we're, you're following along with our sermon series, a citizen of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, or are we going to be a citizen of the earth? Follow Babylon. Those are the two possibilities that John presents his readers and presents us with, two possibilities of living and being in the world. So it presents us a problem when we read, all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Does that make sense? If you say all people on earth are just the people that are living on the earth, that doesn't make sense. And so just make a note of that there, that when John talks about the people of the earth, he is talking about people who are in active rebellion against God. And when Christ returns, and this is a statement of the return of Christ. There's no doubt about it. Uh, when Christ returns, there will be mourning for them. For people who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, that will be a day of what? Great celebration, for sure. Okay, everybody, good. anybody have a question on that? It's very critical. You can't read the book of Revelation right until you get that, that there's these two ways of being, and people of the earth are those who are in rebellion against God. All right, very good. All right, let's go back up. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Pastor Kurt took you all through some connections with the book of Daniel last week, right? And so here we go. This is a direct quote from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 uh, verses at 13 yeah Daniel 7 13 and this is a uh, this whole chapter Daniel chapter 7 is very very important for first century Jewish people it was it was like this chapter that filled them with incredible hope that the pounding they were taking from the monsters the Romans would one day be done away with. And the one who would be, do away with it was the one who was coming on the clouds. Um, and that is a quote from Daniel chapter 7. I want to show you a video this morning from the Bible Project. And um, if y'all were here with us for the for the, uh our study on the book of Mark, you'll be able to answer this question. What is the title that Jesus uses most often of himself? What's that? No? Close. Who said it? Son of Man? Yeah, Son of Man. Hardly anybody else calls him that. Uh, everybody else calls him the Messiah, Christ, right? But Jesus says when he talks about himself, says I am the Son of Man. Jesus. All of these things, right, upload to Daniel chapter 7. That's where it comes from. All right, so let's watch this. I think it's going to be really, really helpful
1: to you. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ. That is the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme how humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil how we can behave like animals right look at the first pages of the bible god creates the beasts of the field and humans together all from the dust But then, the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf, like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms. Which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beast sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence. And it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved having this bizarro dream exactly now watch what happens next in daniel's dream he sees into god's throne room where a court is set up and god condemns the beast to destruction that's great and then daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne oh right the throne that humanity left behind right there hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside god until now Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human, and he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more. All humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, huh. worship? Worship. So this is no ordinary human. This is like a god human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives. And he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, From this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device. But Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst. And then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus's execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast. And as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus's life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love.
0: So... One of the things that challenges us about reading the book of Revelation is that we don't know our Old Testament like Jesus' original hearers did. And, and so all of this, all of this reality and information gets uploaded when we see this, when they would have heard this. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Ah okay. This I can give out Marvin. Okay, so so this video, this is all about good. And and within just the Christian community, why is it that we as Christians among ourselves don't get it and we do all these horrible things to one another? That's a great question. I'm not talking about Yeah. How many of us have done bad things to our fellow Christians? How many of us have had bad Bad things? Why don't we get it? Yeah. anybody want to respond to Marvin? I hope. Human nature. Human nature. (laughs) Who else? Original sin. Say that again? Original sin. Original sin? Yeah. James says we're double-minded. Yep. Yeah. We're adulterous people with one foot in heaven and one foot in earth. That's right. And that's, that's our nature. And that's the yep. And so, so Marvin, that's what we hope that this church is. So much of the Christian community in America, I would say, Heard it like it's a mile wide and a half inch deep. Do we really trust the way of God and the way of Jesus? Do we really trust that, that we are to be people who, regardless of our circumstances, and that's what the book of Revelation teaches us, that regardless of our because their circumstances for all practical purposes sucked. That's it. Can I say it any more clear? To be a Christian in the first century was extremely, extremely challenging. And what Jesus is trying to say to us through the book of Revelation, it it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Will you trust me and trust my way and walk the path of sacrificial love? Are we going to be servants? I mean, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God puts Adam in the garden to serve. Avad, right? Are we going to be servants? Are we going to assume that there's not enough for me? That's why we do bad things to people, even to our fellow Christians, because in our minds, we like, no, 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 if I don't lash out, if I don't hurt, then there's not going to be enough for me. No, no, in the kingdom of God, there is plenty. So it's trusting that, and to walking in, following Jesus regardless. And so it's like choices, Marvin. That's why Christians do bad things to other Christians because Christians choose to do it because they're not trusting in the goodness of God. Being a Christian is still a challenge today. I would contend it's just as big a challenge today. Yeah, It's, it's tough. You talk to missionaries um, in other countries. That my missionary friend is named Fred Vanderwerf. Uh, he was a missionary in Ukraine for seven years. This was, this was a couple of decades ago. Uh, and so after he'd been over there four years, we were having a conversation. And he said, Steve, it's easier to be a Christian in communist you know, it was communist for so long, uh, Ukraine than it is to be in the United States, because in Ukraine, if you're going to be a Christian, it is going to cost you something, and people know it's going to cost you something. In the United States, you can say you're a Christian, and it means absolutely nothing to your day-to-day living, right? I get up on Sunday and I go to church, and I take the family to church, take John and Bill. one of the main teaching points of the book of Revelation. All right. Is that a lack of being salty? Say that again? Would that be a lack of being salty? Yes. Kurt's mentioning the sermon on Sunday. Yes. To the, the picture that you're painting there is there is a lack of salt uh, in that person, family, whatever it may be. A lack of radical, that's, that's what that salt rec- rec- represents a radical commitment to God, His covenant, His way in all areas of life. All right, who's next? Gary.
1: So back to verse seven then. Yeah.
0: Yes. And
1: every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. That's Zechariah. All All people on earth will mourn. So is the picture that he's painting when he's coming on the clouds that everyone, good and evil, are still on the earth? Or have the
0: good souls already been raised? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. What it says here is every eye will see him. What does every eye mean? Every eye. So... So this, I really want you to set aside uh, this idea of a rapture. The book of Revelation, wait for it, does not teach the rapture. If you want to show it to me, I'll be happy to, for you to point it out to me, but you're not going to find it. Sorry. You'll find it in the book of 1 Thessalonians. There's some sort of rapture there. But there is not a rapture in the book of Revelation. Everybody okay? <laughs> so. I mean, to an extent, to be truthful, if you look at the Bible as a whole, the concept of a rapture, you know, God's just going to come and pull you out of I mean, It's really not a theme in the Bible. Things got really bad. People lived through the really bad That's times right. That they had to endure. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The whole, and, and we'll get into this as we move through, but the whole idea, the way that the rapture is normally taught in Protestant North American evangelical theology, is about 150 years old. That's it. Um, and you can go, you can go look up videos on this. Uh, it's it's very new, but man, is it pervasive now. So, It's like I feel like we got to unlearn all this stuff and really focus in on what's important. So that video, just how it, how it uh, unpacked for Daniel, if you read Daniel the whole of chapter 7, it is freaky. Monster after monster, beast after beast after beast. Well, that's one of the things that the book of Revelation is famous for, is the beast, Right? the mark of the beast, right? Uh, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, there's two beasts. There's the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, which is also known as the false prophet. So that this, this reality of the Son of Man coming to sit on the throne in Daniel, it is a direct confrontation of the beasts. So One of the questions the book of Revelation asks, are you going to be in league with the beast or are you going to stay in, Marvin, a trusting, obedient, covenantal relationship with the one who is on the throne, with the Son of Man? So it's like John is trying to get our attention early. What are you looking at? what are you paying attention to? Are you paying attention to the, 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 the most ugly beast that the video talked about? The one that's like, ah, so bad. That's the Roman Empire. In, in Daniel's context, that is the, the kingdom that is coming, the empire that is coming. It's the Roman Empire. And so it's all very, very relevant, these connections between Daniel and uh, the book of Revelation. All right, we got through one verse. <laughs> All right, we will we will start making more more traction uh, as we kind of get these introductory bits uh, behind us. But we got to hold on to everything that we're learning up up front to carry us through. Okay, one more, two more questions for the good of the group. Or a comment. I have an abstract one. So in Norse mythology, Thor kills the beast. The serpent, when the serpent strikes him and he dies nine steps after him. Is there any, do, do we know, obviously, I mean, I'm assuming that they would have taken that from this and applied it to their... Religion. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So y'all the, the the in the video the the picture of the son of man striking the serpent and the serpent biting his foot, y'all know where that's from, right? So it's G E N Genesis G E N E S I S three is it seventeen, maybe? Nope. Yeah. Genesis 3:15. So this is the original beast. In the context of the of the video, in the context of Daniel, this is the and, and then certainly in the book of Revelation, this beast is going to be mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. So it's coming. This is uh uh, God talking to Eve: I will put enmity between you and your and the woman, and between oh, this is talking to the snake between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. At the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is when it happened. right there, and then the implications of that have been spilling out ever since so the temptation is uh, am i going to trust the crutch- crushing power of the son of man through his death and resurrection or am i going to trust the false power of the beast who's been already been crushed
1: Gary, you use the Bible project paper here. Is this a good source for studying revelation?
0: I think so. Okay. I think I think the two videos are really good. Okay. Very good. I don't agree with everything that they say, nor would they agree with everything that I say. And if you run across somebody that's studying the book of Revelation that forces you to say, no, you gotta agree with everything that I say, you need to run away from them very quickly. (laughs) Because you cannot possibly grasp all that God is saying to us through the book. But we can get it in general. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will give us the courage today to open our eyes wide to the reality of your power and love. Lord, when we are tempted to give in to the power of the beast, Lord, I pray that we will deeply trust you to guide us, to lead us to places of victory, of conquering, not just for our sake, but for the sake of everyone that you will place in our path. So keep our eyes open, God. And may we trust you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys very much. you will have a great day.